Good evening. So thankfully y'all are here. I'm, hope, I'm also happy that we're able to stay in the warmth other than the cold outside. Um, I guess as we're nearing this time of thankfulness, I guess it's time for me to kind of give a little bit of thanks of my own too. And it was interesting being asked to give a sermon here and kind of to look into the whole email that was sent and seeing all the other men that were also arranged to do these sermons. And man, isn't it amazing that we can have a whole bunch of men that are able to step up and give a message from the Word of God, and especially knowing all the great work that Blake has done with his sermons, and even the past Sunday evening sermons with uh, Tyler and Sam as well. It's been awesome to be able to listen to amazing messages here, and although I may be an exception, I might be a weird one here, but um, it's so great to have this opportunity nonetheless. So now, we as the church are referred to as quite a few things, and I mean, we can be seen as the body of Christ, the bride, disciples, but the most interesting I always find is that we are sheep too. And I mean, I think part of it could be the social image it has when a person is called a sheep. I remember in one of my classes, um, they tried to define different types of followers, and it was based on two things. The first was whether you were an active or a passive follower, and then the second was going to be whether you were more of an independent thinker or where you thought dependently upon someone else too. But to the most interesting thing, they try to give these people different types of titles with that. And for the person that was a passive, dependent thinker, they gave that follower the title of a sheep. So it was interesting knowing that, you know, practically the weakest follower that would be easiest to take control of would be described as this animal. And I mean, additionally, I even look back at a time where I was kind of waiting with my debate team for this award ceremony. And Weirdly enough, I mean, you think the war ceremony is presented at the end, but I guess you could also tell how many people in debate aren't really athletes because they put the war ceremony within the middle of the tournament, whereas you don't even know who won. You kind of just see who were the first people to lose because they kind of recognize the octofinalists at the time. But I remember waiting in that room for a moment, and the whole room was getting packed. All the teams were there ready for the award ceremony, but no one was at the podium yet. No one was there to kick off the award ceremony to say that it's glad that everyone is here and getting ready to pass out the awards. We were all kind of just waiting for a bit, and I mean, knowing that we still had some elimination rounds to get, people were getting a little bit antsy too. I mean, they were waiting a little bit, wondering, okay, well, when are these... When is, when is it going to start? I mean, when can we just have the awards ceremony get into the next out rounds and see what happens because of this? And after a little bit of time, we'll start to notice that people start clapping all of a sudden. And I don't know if it was just me out of habit. I mean, I started clapping too. I mean, I, I looked at the podium. I didn't see anybody walking there, but I wonder, you know, okay, I mean, something's happening, I guess. I mean, maybe they're starting the whole thing. But with a confused look on my face, I kind of started asking around to my peers. I mean, who are we clapping for? And that's when one of my friends... She started laughing a little bit, and she said, you know what, see, you're just like a sheep too. I mean, because you're clapping, and you don't even know who or what you're clapping for. But now I know that she was joking in the moment, but isn't it interesting how there's always a little bit of truth to every joke? And with how the world sees it, it is unfavorable to want to be a sheep. But even when we look at it further, too, there's even this desire to be called a, a goat or a greatest of all time. And then people don't look at like Michael Jordan or Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys and say that that person is a sheep. I mean, you don't know what we'd even call the acronym for a sheep. I mean, maybe so handsome and especially energetic person. I mean, there isn't any good acronym for a sheep. But we'll notice that we see this whole term of being the greatest of all time, being a goat. But as we look at the Bible, we get this opposite message. 
Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, Jesus talks about how when the Son of Man comes, he will separate the people as a shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats. And he puts the goats on the left and he tells them to depart from him. But to the sheep on the right, he commends them and tells them to take part of their inheritance. Now, according to the Bible, we want to be sheep, despite what negative stigma the world tries to bring about it. And that's okay because we also know that we can have the most perfect shepherd. Some may even call him the good shepherd, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, for tonight, you might call this a quick powwow, or however you like to fancy it, but I just like to call this simply sheep talk, where we as a sheep can kind of look into the word and see what we as a sheep are to do. And for the first half of this, we'll be looking into John chapter 10 for at least the first half. So if you're following your Bible, we should flip over there. But as we'll notice in the section of John, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he reaches this part where he starts talking about shepherding. This can be a great reassurance to us because we get to see more the extent to which Jesus is present for us, how he knows us, how he protects us, and even how he dies for us. And we can see a good part of what Jesus' role is and what he did for us, but I want to re-examine this passage a little bit to see that what we as sheep are called to do, because this relationship that we have with Christ is not something that is just a one-way street, but a two-way. Because just as Jesus and God gives us mercy and grace, we are to also give ourselves in return as well. So now we'll look into this, starting in verse 1. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the shepherd hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, I want us to let that sink in for a moment. Right here, we can see what Jesus does. He enters by the door. And with this, I mean, he's not trying to jump over any walls or enter in some other way, but he enters through the legitimate way. I mean, when we're looking at a sheepfold, it's a pretty simple structure. I mean, it's an enclosure surrounded by walls, sometimes pretty high walls, and there's only one entrance, which also happens to be the same exit too. Now, when we look at a shepherd with a sheep, We can notice that there's only one shepherd for the whole flock of sheep. Therefore, there's no need to have any multiple entrances when there's only one person that should be entering and exiting the sheepfold. And the same should go with our lives as well. We can picture this as us being individual sheep within one sheepfold, but I want us all to picture this as us having our own individual sheepfolds and that this sheepfold represents our life too. I mean, only we ourselves can dictate what goes in and out of our lives, much like how the sheepfold has one door. And Jesus wants to enter through the legitimate way, but he doesn't force himself in. I mean, he doesn't barge in, guns blazing, shoving Christianity down our throats that we must follow him. I mean, he gave us free will too. And we can decide who we let into our lives, including Jesus. The thing is, it can be difficult to let him into our lives because if we are to, we also have to be able to let him take control and be the shepherd of our lives too. Now this begs the question, is God the owner of your own sheepfold? I mean, to be able to let God take control is to not let anyone or anything be in that same position as well. And I mean, this also applies to sin. I mean, we have all sinned, but once we are baptized and are washed of our sins, we are sinners no more. And now, this doesn't mean that we never sin or can't make any mistakes, too, but that sin is not what is controlling our lives, but instead that shows that God is in control instead. 
A life of sin is not a life of ours, and we are to carry on as this was the case. And the same thing goes when looking into idols. I think sometimes when you think of idols, we can tend to think of a, a golden calf like Baal or some sort of sculpture, but I feel like today's idols are in different forms too. I mean, we can see the way we work as at our jobs as an idol. I mean, this whole American mindset of trying to pursue the American dream and romanticize being a workaholic. I mean, obviously working hard in a job is not a bad thing, but we need to make sure that we don't let this take precedence over who we are to serve too. I mean, in this life, we can have many things competing for our attention, but we are to make sure that God is the sole owner. And the same thing can be applied to the relationships we have as well. I mean, many of the things we choose to have in our life may not necessarily be bad things, but just as said before, we also need to make sure to love God most so that we can love others best. So now when we look at the second half of this passage, we notice that he says, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger will, they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. I mean, here, I mean, we as a sheep should be able to recognize God's voice, but likewise be able to disassociate from what isn't his voice too. But how do we do this? I think the first of the two things can be a little bit easier to grasp. I mean, first we are given his word. And, I mean, there's a reason we call it the Word, because this is supposed to be something that is God-breathed and inspired. I mean, even this morning, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and the first part of that says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And if you've been able to hear the past few Sunday morning sermons that Blake had preached so well, we can see the importance of Scripture and how this is something of value. But not only is it something of value, we are also given the exact blueprints for how we are to act. I mean, we could take this as like instructions on how to build a Lego set, except that Lego set is our lives. So, for example, we can look back at Matthew 25, starting in verse 34. And it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the, of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these brothers you did to me. Now, when we are to recognize God's voice, we are to also realize what we are to do. I mean, much in line with what Chris had talked about with integrity, our actions and deeds have to align with what our words are saying too. And if we are to proclaim to be followers of Christ or proclaim that we recognize God's voice, we are to follow through with what we do in that regard as well. I mean, we are called to be like Jesus. I mean, that's why we're also called Christians. Christ is the root word meaning that we are to be of or like Christ. I mean, we aren't called Mateoians and Thank goodness, because we can only put up with so much awkwardness and weirdness, but instead we're also called Christians in this regard. I mean, if we were to hear his voice, we are to know what he wants us to do, and therefore our actions need to back up what we say and what title we choose to carry along that. Now, the second half of this can take a little more expl explaining. How are we to recognize the stranger's voice? I mean, we first we need to ask, well, who is a stranger in this context? And I mean, we can associate this with false teachers, but I also want to propose that this is also sin as well. I mean, let's look at Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And it says, What shall we say then? Are we continuing in sin that grace may abound? 
By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now we'll look in verse 6 too. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that this was a little bit of a longer passage, so let's break this down here. I mean, to give context, the reason Paul was saying this was because the church in Rome had a misconception of seeing how great I think grace was because it also stemmed from like the washing and cleansing of sins. I mean, this would mean to have more grace, we need to have more sins so that grace can cover more of it. As had been discussed before, this shows to be counterproductive. I mean, as Paul continues, he talks about how since we are baptized into Christ's death, along with his burial and resurrection, we are to be dead to sin and alive in Jesus. When we had lived as sinners, sin was not a stranger to us. I mean, it was kind of like that friend that definitely was a bad influence that your parents probably would warn you about, but you say in denial, I mean, well, I mean, I won't be picking up their bad habits. I mean, they're still a fun person to hang around with, despite his or her faults. And then you end up picking up those bad habits and fail to realize it. Much like what was said before, I mean, people aren't always struggling with sin. Sometimes they very much enjoy it, too. I mean, otherwise they stop doing it if it was something they didn't like, or they, they wasn't something they liked. The thing is, we can't be a friend or acquaintance with sin anymore once we die and are set free from it. I mean, we can even see this emphasized further in verse 12 as well, saying, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as bright instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace." So now, we can't let sin reign over us, much less should we even invite it into the sheepfold of our lives. I mean, in addition to this, we shouldn't recognize its voice nor even listen to it. And this can be easily said about what we would probably call like our big sins. I mean, we know not to murder. We know not to do some of these things that are probably going to be huge no-nos for most of us. But there's always the small sins, as we can call them, that can go under radar. One that can be pointed out that doesn't get viewed with a sense of urgency like others would be gossiping. I mean, it can be easy to gossip because the person that it is being done against is not present. But just as we like to say that God is ever present in our lives, he is also there with us in the times we would prefer he doesn't see. So these sins that we would like to keep behind closed doors because no one may be watching are being completely seen. And that's where the integrity really comes in. I mean, when it comes to the sheepfold of our lives, we really need to make sure that when, God, when we let God and Jesus take control, they're the only ones taking control, and we forget what used to be in that place. Sin is the old management, as I like to say, that wasn't so productive. I mean, it caused many HR events. It was something that was narcissistic, self-serving, came across as being charismatic to woo you, but in the end, it only wanted to work to serve itself. Sin is no servant leader, but Jesus is. So now recognizing 
whose voice belongs to who is much like the caller ID on a phone call. I mean, most of the time, whenever I get a call, I mean, I hardly pick up unless it's from someone I know. And if it's just a random number and no name, I mean, I tend to let them go to voicemail, especially if it has a different area code. I figured if the call would be of something important, they would leave me a message or, or even just shoot me a text. And it went by pretty well until I had received a call from an unknown number and then was left a voicemail. I mean, normally, I don't even check my voicemail until much later, but I had just gotten off work at the time and decided to listen to it as I was walking to my car. And it hadn't dawned on me until earlier that day, I realized I had placed this catering order for an event, and there was the same people trying to call me, trying to reconfirm on that order. And had I not called back soon after receiving the call of voicemail, I probably wouldn't have received the right order if I would have received one anyways, and I would have to explain it in front of a group of hungry people. Now, the reason I bring this story up is because this isn't how our lives should be with God. When God calls, we better have a caller ID associated with him and better be able to step out of the room to take that call as well. The amazing thing is that God is always in pursuit of us too. I mean, he constantly calls us and leaves plenty of voicemails. And when we do have him saved in our contacts, we can be sure that he is always consistently talking to us as well. But we in turn should also be able to make sure that we are consistently reaching out back to him too. So now, how do we do this? I mean, something great that God gives us is prayer, but how can we expect to have a good relationship with God if we aren't talking to him much? I mean, or if we do talk to him, are we really giving him our all if we just talk to him at certain times? I mean, sometimes I feel like we can only talk to him when we're just in need. Or at other times, you could probably maybe be talking to him when we're only just in a good mood in itself. But we need to be able to make this bridge towards our communication with him. I mean, looking at the relationships we have operate, communication serves to be a big part of that. I mean, much like how communication with our peers and family members are, we can't just talk to them only during specific times. I mean, the thing that makes a relationship so strong is when we are able to maintain consistent contact with a person. I mean, one thing I'd always like to think about when I reflect on my prayer life is if it's something that of a passenger seat prayer life. Now, when I drive to work or school, I tend to have an empty passenger seat. I mean, nothing is really there, maybe besides my book bag. But if I were to reflect, every time I have someone in the passenger seat of my car, I normally engage in some sort of conversation. I mean, it could be some small talk asking about the other's day, or it could revolve around where we are going. But all in all, though, that car isn't silent, but at least has some talking in it. If I weren't to to talk to the person sitting next to me, it would be kind of weird in some cases, rude as well. Now, the question I would bring up is, why is our prayer life the way that it is, even if we know that God is always there with us? I mean, if you were to sit in that passenger seat right next to me, why would I want to ignore him and drive in silence or just listen to some music? I mean, we need to have something like a passenger seat prayer life. And on top of this, though, we also have amazing blessings to talk to God, and he always makes himself available to us. And if we were to really know him, we would also go through the necessary steps to ensure that we also have a healthy relationship with him. So now I'll leave us with one more story and wrap everything up so that the evening can be yours in the end. There was a man named David Goggins, and for those who don't know who this man is, he was a retired Navy SEAL who is also an ultra-marathon runner, an ultra-distance cyclist, triathlete, public speaker, author, and he was even known for setting the Guinness World Record for pull-ups, where he did 4,030 pull-ups in 17 hours. Now, it's safe to say that this man has quite the resume on him, 
But at one point when he was being interviewed, he was asked what the biggest fear in his life was. And he started with saying, you know what, let's say I'm talking to God and I made it to heaven and there's this long line of people behind me and he starts trying to describe me. He pulls up this list and tells me to read it. And it said that I was a Navy SEAL. I mean, I ended up being a motivational speaker. I set up the pull-up record and a long list of other achievements. But knowing me and my time, I turned to him and I said, no, I mean, that's not me. I didn't do any of those things. And then God turns to him and says, I know, but that's who you were supposed to be. And I think sometimes, especially when I do my daydreaming, especially during my business law class, I wonder what my life stats would be like. Like if I were to see how many times I ordered Taco Bell, or if I could see how many times I said, shiver me timbers, or how many nights I've gone less than four hours of sleep. But it also leads me to wonder, too, if God were to pull up a list of what I did, would he say that I was someone who prayed to him daily? Would he say that I was someone who read from his word frequently? Would he say that I was someone who showed love to those that weren't so lovable at times? Would he say that I knew him and recognized his voice? And if he did in that list, would I have to tell him that that wasn't me because I didn't do those things? And would he have to say to me, yes, I mean, I know, but that's who you're supposed to be. I mean, let's make sure that we are who God was intending us to be, as, especially as being sheep towards the good shepherd. Let's make sure that God is the shepherd over the sheepfold of our lives. But on top of this, let's also make sure that we don't only recognize his voice, but also follow through with his commands as well. And on top of this, let's also make sure that we can't let those that are strangers be strangers to us and not listen to the temptation of sin. I mean, it may sound like a lot to handle, but it's what we as a sheep need to make sure we're doing because we know that the Good Shepherd is upholding his end of the bargain. We need to make sure to uphold our end too. So now it comes to the invitation. I mean, maybe there's someone here that is finding it hard to let strangers be strangers. Maybe there's someone here who may know about God, but haven't known him yet through the death, burial, and resurrection through Jesus and baptism. I mean, I don't know what position you're in right now, but I do know that we have a baptistry here, and we also have a loving family here in this congregation that can pray for you, that can love you, and that can serve you in any way they can. So here we're about to be led in a song of invitation, but if there's any way we can serve you tonight, I ask that you please come forward as we stand and as we sing.